Hello once again You're listening to Mr. Speaker Speaks This is the one and only Vincent T. Edwards Better known as Mr. Speaker Want to welcome you all to this podcast Episode You know this is the show that informs Challenges and inspires It's real talk From real people about real things And it's the show where the guests Actually get to speak you know, you can learn more about me at VincentTEdwards.com. That's VincentTEdwards.com. And for my listening audience today, get your buckets out, get prepared. You want to be inspired and challenged. We're going to have someone on today that's going to share a story that will just blow your mind. My guest today is Dr. Henry Lewis III, and we're going to have a great conversation about his life, who he is, his challenges, how he overcame so that you can know that no matter where you are in life, you can make it. I want to let you know today's show is brought to you in part by Program Success. It's a magazine that spotlights the success of individuals. More information is available about them at Program Success. Dot net program success the name says it all and you know a lot of times we get caught and we want some motivation well i have something called motivation made easy it's just a simple text weekly to keep you inspired if you want to join my text messaging list please just text the word join to 850-771-4996 that's 850-771-4996 just text that word join to that number and you will get inspiration and motivation to help you pivot into your purpose with power and precision like always here on mr speaker speaks we go to the lord in prayer Heavenly Father, we truly thank you once again for this day, a day that we've never seen before, but you allowed us to be here so that we can utilize the gifts that you gave us to help others, to inspire others so that they can be successful, sharing our life stories, our challenges and how we overcame the obstacles that we went through. It wasn't just for us so that we can help others. Now, I ask that your power be upon this broadcast this episode and to be with my guest dr henry lewis continue to be with him and all that he does and all that he puts his hands to do because he's dedicated to what he's been called to do and the and the call to help others succeed and to build community and we give you praise glory and honor in jesus name amen the inspirational scripture today will come from the book of luke luke chapter 12 Verse 48, and I want to go to part B of that verse, and it reads this for unto whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required and to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. So what is it that God has given you? If he's given you a lot, you got to give to others. My guest today, Dr. Henry Lewis, the third. He is the CEO of Red Hills Research Institute in Tallahassee, Florida. Prior to this appointment, he was provost and vice president for academic affairs at the American University of Health Sciences in Signal Hill, California. He served as president of Florida Memorial University for two years. He previously served as dean and professor in the College of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at Florida A&M University, better known as FAMU, the highest of seven hills in the capital city of Tallahassee, Florida. He did that for 18 years. He was also interim president of FAMU. He also served as dean of the Texas Southern University College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences in Houston for four years. And that's the tip of the iceberg. And we're going to go deep below the surface today. Dr. Lewis, welcome. How are you doing today? I am doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is truly a pleasure. And we're going to kick this off. And I, I just got a question for you. A little light, a little humor. Coke or Pepsi? Tea or coffee? <laughs> Which one are you? I've got to go with coffee. My mom said I went from the bottle to coffee. <laughs> so, you, so you love a good cup of joe? I love a good cup of joe. Wow. So what is it about coffee that just gets you all stirred up, I guess, right, or heated up? What, what's about coffee? It's, I think it's about waking you up and making you feel vibrant. I started drinking coffee probably at the age of six. 
and I've been drinking it ever since. Uh, I'm now a true coffee drinker. I take it black. I want to taste the aroma. I want to smell the smell of the coffee, and I want to actually experience the the the, be, the bees and the beans of the coffee. Wow. So so you, do you do you like a uh, uh, was it Cuban coffee? Actually, there's a local coffee here called Lucky Goat. Lucky Goat. And I am uh, in love with Lucky Goat. Uh, they make one of the best coffees around. They import it to Tallahassee, but they make their own flavors here. And they have a, one called Southern Pecan. Southern Pecan. to die for. Oh, it's not like pecan pie. <laughs> so it's to die for. Wow. You know, before we get into to your life story and, and your upbringing, I want to ask you this question, you know, because you're an educator. What do you think the biggest challenge today is in education at the collegiate level? Before we get started, I, I want to hear your your opinion on that. Wow, that's a uh, very interesting question, and one I'm glad you threw at me because I've been mulling over that in my last few uh, years to try to come up with what now is the new direction for higher education in particular, and. What now is the new direction for historically black colleges and university, universities in particular? I think the basic challenge today is having young men and young women find themselves as early on in their academic pursuits as they can. Florida a in particular, as all historically black colleges and universities, are facing significant challenges both with funding as well as attracting the kind of students that we need to educate in the future. The basic problem I see right now is lack of preparation coming into college. And those universities whose previous mission was to take you, regardless of how you came prepared, cannot in some cases do that again because they're shunning those students to community colleges to, quote-unquote, prepare them ahead of time. I think that uh, Florida and it was done and is doing an absolutely fantastic job of taking the young people where they are and taking them to the next level of their both academic and professional development. So spinning off of that question, do you think there's always going to be a role for HBCUs in the collegiate system? I mean, when you look at all of the, you know, the, the other universities that exist, and we specifically have HBCUs in their own category, I know in the beginning there was a specific niche and a void that they filled. How do you see that playing out now? I, I see them filling that same void and that same niche that they filled fill, uh, 100 years ago. Uh, although we are in the 2020s now, uh, integration is the norm. The role that historical black colleges and universities have always played is taking a young man or a young woman and get, making them all that they can be. I don't want to say that historically white colleges can't do that with our black students, but we have demonstrated through our HBCUs over the sands of time that we can do that and done it well. If you look at the products that's coming out of our universities today, they're taking on all kinds of positions at the CEO level and higher administration levels, political levels that they've never taken before. That demonstrates that the black colleges are still doing what they need to do. I don't think that we need to keep justifying the need for black colleges because they are performing at the same level any other college is, is performing at. And with that, so if they're performing at the level, and, and you may or may not be able to answer this, why is there so much inequity when it comes to the concept of finance? When it comes to finance. You, you could think about that if you, you want to answer no, now. No, we no, can come back to no, that. When, no. Because there seems to be such a disparity. You know, um, I'm not going to name any, any names of colleges, but in, in general, why is it so much more difficult, even if there's both, if they're state institutions, for them to get adequate funding to be able to carry out that mission, which you just stated, which is very, very critical and important? Let, let me be blunt, if I can. Uh, racism and white privilege is still prevailing to this day in 2022. Uh, you have individuals and you have systems that don't want to see black people 
a black community or black institutions thrive. Because of that, they cut the funding or reduce the funding and don't get the same recognition that the other colleges and universities are receiving because of that. We're coming from a disparate background because we did not get the funding historically, but we're still performing at the same or higher levels than those who are getting the funding. That demonstrates that we can produce, we are producing, and we are comparable to any other university in this land. And that ability to produce, even with less, leads me to this question. You're the oldest sibling, an oldest child. What was life like growing up in that household? And I bridge that gap because your education was challenging because of what you were, how you were labeled and people didn't, a lot of people didn't think you were going to succeed, but from your early beginnings to now you were able to overcome challenges. Talk to us about your childhood. Well, I grew up uh, here in the Tallahassee, on the South side in the bond community. Uh, we grew up uh, in a, what we call a shotgun house. For those of you who don't know what a shotgun house is, it's a house that you can look in the front door and see out the back door <laughs> in that regard and not much in between. However, uh, I am the oldest of six siblings. My mom nor my dad finished high school, but they made sure that all of us went to college and got a good education irrespective of what they had to do. That was their mission in life, to make sure that their kids were better off than they were. Growing up uh, on the south side of Tallahassee in the 50s was a very different time for Tallahassee. It was segregated. Uh, we, were the, uh, we went to Bond Elementary School initially. Uh, we were the first class to uh, go into R. Frank Nims when it opened up on Orange Avenue and Saxon Street on the south side. And I was the last class to finish from the physical building of old Lincoln High School over in Frenchtown. So my, my, my early education was all segregated because Tallahassee was segregated at the time. Not having the background that some of the other kids had, I was labeled a slow learner uh, in my elementary school. In fact, we had to go to a, another facility where they call, where they sent all of the students who were labeled at that time as slow learners. They call them EOC students This at this particular juncture. Now, but nonetheless, I had a teacher, Mrs. Kilpatrick, who believed in me, believed in what uh, I could do, and inspired me to be all that I can be. And that's what we had back in that day, and still today, with uh, a lot of our black teachers, teachers who are motivational, committed and persistent in making sure that you do to your complete potential. And I truly concur um, with that. Um, I had in high school uh, a black teacher and I will never forget her as long as I live. Miss Helen Albert. And she, she pushed me. That was very powerful. When you look at being labeled, how did that affect you? Well, it affects you both uh, psychologically and it affects you mentally in that regard. And uh, you, you, you have the uh, shame, if you will, of the other students who know you are labeled in this particular manner. That's why it's so important that uh, we treat all students as if they have the potential and the capacity to learn in that regard and not let them be labeled, even by their counterparts, as somewhat different in that regard. But that challenged me, though. That made me more wanting to learn, produce, and be successful in that regard. And looking at your <clears throat> your background, you're not a stranger to work. No. <laughs> I have been working since uh, I was a toddler, probably. My dad was, as I said, did not finish high school. Initially, he was a carpenter. In fact, he and my uncle, Joseph Lewis, uh, they built probably about 20 or 30 houses in the Bond community at that time. He suffered an uh, accident and fell off a roof and broke his back and could not con continue to do that. But all along, I worked with him uh, and learned the trade. Uh, when he could not work anymore, he started 
a lawn service built a business, as well as he worked as a janitor in, at FAMU, and I'll talk about that in just a, just a little bit as well. So did you cut some lawns in your day? I've cut, probably cut more white doctor's lawns in Tallahassee <laughs> than anybody else, for sure, because that's who most of his clients were uh, in and around the Tallahassee Memorial Hospital at that time. Uh, one of the particular lawns we cut was off of Thomasville Road, and were, were the, the Basses. They were a northern couple who uh, owned a Florida home here in Tallahassee. They had about 20 acres of land, uh, and they had two cottages on there. Our job was to maintain that property when they went back to Boston after the winter here in Florida. Uh, I cut that 20 acres of property for $5. 20 acres for $5. That's what I got every other Saturday for cutting 20 acres for $5. Hopefully you were on a riding lawnmower. <laughs> uh, of course we were not on a lawn, riding lawnmower, nor were we, did we have a self-propel. It was a totally push lawnmower. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that, that's some work there. That's some true work. I grew up cutting lawns down south in Fort Lauderdale. My dad owned his own lawn service, but we had self-propelled. But whew, it was some hard work. It was hard work, and it took actually a day and a half to, to actually do that. And for $5. For $5. And I thought I was doing good, too. <laughs> <laughs> what a perspective. And looking back now, it's like, wait a minute. I think they got over it. <laughs> they just, got over me. They got big over Big time. But... The you know God God works in mysterious ways. Uh, Mrs. Bass would save all the National Geographic magazines that she uh, got, and she would give those to me, and I would read virtually every one of them from cover to cover, and I lived vicariously through the National Geographic magazine. You may know that they have pictures of all kind of countries and all kinds of scenes from all over the world. That inspired me to want to travel internationally. And from cutting that lawn for $5, getting those National Geographic magazines, I have now visited 56 countries. Wow. You actually got an opportunity to do it. It states that or I've heard that if you want to travel and you can't do it, just read a book. Just read a book. That's read a book. And you've read all those magazines. And ultimately, you said, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. I can go there, more importantly. And in my mind, I went there. And that's what you have to do first. Put it in your mind that you want to do something and then actualize it. Wow. And that brings me back to putting it in your mind. What about lawn service and working outside and working hard made you want to pursue or what lessons did you learn to propel you to that next level after high school, which was college? Well, my my dad, a came from a family of 13 kids. My grandmother, his mother, was a very, very strong-willed woman, an entrepreneur and a farmer. And every summer we would go and spend the summer on the farm uh, out here in Cheers. And uh, she grew everything. In fact, she only came to town at that time to get staples, the flour and the sugar and that kind of stuff that she did not grow. All the animals we, we we maintained and we ate from as well. So you cut the heads off chickens and stuff like that? Both chickens and hogs as well as cattle. My. Every Thanksgiving, she would uh, kill probably about 14 or 15 hogs or five or six cows, and the entire community would come. And everybody who did some work got a chance to take significant amounts of meats back. That became an annual tradition. I think we did it for at least 15 years that I can remember in that regard. Wow. So that, that had a tremendous impact on, on your life, the concept of seeing that, you know, helping others, um, providing for the community, which probably, I, I would say, led to what you're doing now, some of the, 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 the work that you're doing and the work that you've done in, in the Bond community, that sense of giving back. Yeah. She inspired me. And she motivated me because of what she did and how she lived in that regard. So I was able to get that uh, perspective from her and carried on throughout my whole life. When we uh, 
working through the NAACP some years ago, uh, thought that the county needed to move towards single-member districts for the election of our county commissioners. Uh, we approached the county commission at that time in 1985 and asked if they would consider, since all of the other, I don't want to say all, but a number of other municipalities around the South as throughout Georgia and Alabama were converting to single-member district elections. Uh, we should do it here in Tallahassee as well because we had never had a black county <clears throat> commissioner here in Tallahassee. The uh, NAACB asked most respectfully of the county to do that. They respectfully declined. And uh, through the work of uh, Mrs. Anita Davis, who was the president of the NAACP at that time, she had connections from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund in New York. They, she enlisted them to take our case. They did, and we successfully sued the county for single-member districts. Dorothy Emman and I were the chairpersons of the legal uh, legal uh, legal committee for the NAACP, and as a result, we got to uh, determine what direction we we're going to go. They asked Dorothy if she would run for city commission, and they asked me if I would run for county commission, and both of us did, and both of us won. I became the first black county commissioner that Tallahassee has had uh, in his all all of his time since uh, that happened in nineteen. 19- 1986. 1986. Hmm. Wow. I was, uh, I was at the University of Florida <laughs> in, in 1986. Graduating high school, you went to college. How was that getting into college and paying for college? Wow. That's interesting. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I went to, and we were in the last class to finish from the building in, of old Lincoln High School in 1967. I don't mind telling my age. Uh, but there were two other classes that finished thereafter, but nonetheless, uh, we were the last class there. I was uh, actually dating a young lady who worked at Economy Drugstore in uh, in Frenchtown. Uh, Mr. Howard Roberts was the pharmacist there, and she worked, uh, back in that day, uh, drugstores had soda fountains, and she worked behind the soda fountain. I played football at Lincoln, so uh, and I lived on the south side of town. Lincoln was on the northern part of town, so I had to walk back home every afternoon after football practice. Of course, I would always stop by Economy Drugstore since it was on the way. It was on the way. Hey. She was there. <laughs> she was there. Give me a little soda <laughs> going away. Oh, I got a little soda. <laughs> got a little Sunday, <laughs> sometime banana split. All right. Uh, all free of charge. Right? <laughs> Well, that went on for about uh, two or three months, and Mr. Roberts finally came to me and said, Son, if you're going to come up here and eat all my banana splits and drink my Sundays, you need to work here. So he gave me a job. Wow. And I worked in the economy drugstore for all of my uh, senior year. And come time for, uh, and in fact, at that time, I hadn't really made up my mind what I wanted to do in college. But uh, he saw something in me, Mr. Roberts did, mm. that I didn't see in myself. He saw that I could be a pharmacist. He called up the then dean of the College of Pharmacy, Mr. Hurd M. Jones, Jr., and said, I got a boy over here that I think will make a good pharmacist. And he arranged a meeting with me and Dean Jones at the time. I went up and I met with him, and he said, "Uh, okay, you got decent grades. They're not the best, but you got decent grades. We're going to let you in because on the the recommendation of Mr. Roberts. He, I was admitted to pharmacy school, and all of a sudden, I'm I'm looking around now. How am I going to fund this, uh, this new venture? That, this new uh, venture. I'm here, but I'm here, but I ain't money. got no money. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't have Pell grants and all those kind of grants back in that day. But I continued to work uh, part time. I worked uh, both in the drugstore with Mister Roberts, and again at Morrison's Cafeteria. Morrison's. Morrison's. I was like, that's back in the that, day. Cause that, that they is, well, Morrison's is, was located where now the city hall of Tallahassee is physically located right now. So I did both of those jobs to help me pay my way through my college for my first couple of years in that regard. Uh, the Vietnam War started, and uh, they began. FAMU is a land-grant university, and I don't know if you've 
listeners know that most land-grant universities have an ROTC program. And because FAMU had an ROTC program, it was mandatory that the first two years, freshman and sophomore, you had to take ROTC training to prepare you for a war, if there was a war. And there happened to be one going on right there. Uh, During that time, uh, if you you fail any quarter, uh, you got less than a C average. You got drafted. Literally, immediately thereafter. That's some incentive to study. That, that was the best retention program that ever was invented <laughs> in that regard. But uh, several of my uh, colleagues who went to school with me, but not in pharmacy, but in other por- parts of the uh, program who finished from Lincoln got drafted in that regard. But nonetheless, I, I did not get drafted. But uh, I did get a job at Olin Chemical Corporation down in St. Mark's, Florida, because of my science background, I was able to be, be employed in the quality control lab, uh, actually measuring the amount of nitroglycerin in the gunpowder that we were making. <laughs> and wow. I, I worked that job for, I want to say, 27 months. I worked the graveyard shift from 12 o'clock at night to 8 o'clock in the morning, and I went to school by day. So that's the way I financed the latter part of my college education by working at Olin Chemical Corporation. What I hear there is true determination because we have a lot of people that say, well, I, I don't know how to do it. I can't do it. But here I'm saying you worked all night, went to school by, by day. day. And I slept maybe four or five, six hours sometimes. I did get a chance to sleep a little bit on my night shift if nobody was there. But nonetheless, yeah, I worked mostly the uh, graveyard shift and uh, went to school by day. And I was able to successfully do that because of, like you say, that determination and drive that I got both from my father and my mother and certainly from my grandmother, Mrs. Cora Lewis. Uh, so that whole concept, your why was truly great. I often tell people that, you know, in order to do something, your why must be great. The reason behind it mm-hmm. and seeing how you grew up, the principles that were instilled in you mm-hmm. by your parents and you saw where they were, they really pressed it. And you said, OK, I got to do this for them. Is education as important to you now as it was then and to your parents? It's even more important to me now, I think. uh I have uh, been blessed with uh, being around individuals, particularly in the higher education community, that motivates you and charges you. I want to go back to my county commission days because that influences a little bit about education as well. I had the opportunity to do two significant things as a county commission, a number, but two that I want to mention here today. One was uh, I mentioned Mr. Howard Roberts. And because I was a, when I got on the county commission, I was a pharmacist. I worked at FAMU in the College of Pharmacy at the time. I was not dean. I was assistant dean then. But uh, I was able to uh, get the legislature to fund uh, the health departments here in Tallahassee. During that time, we only had one health department that was on Gain Street, right near Cascades Park, as it's called right now. Uh People would have to catch a couple of buses to get from where they live to Kane Street in order to get health care at the health department. I, I decided that we needed to have a decentralized county health department system. So I went with the, the blessings of our county commission and the city commission, and we petitioned the legislature to fund a new health unit. The first one was funded on Old Bainbridge Road. Is right next to New Mount Zion Church. Uh, if you notice that those two are side by side, and that's not by happenstance, because New Mount Zion used to be located on Fourth Avenue, they they would flood out quite a bit on Fourth Avenue. They sought a new location. They bought that property adjacent to where the health department was. After planning to build the church, they did not have enough land for a parking lot. So we were able to locate the county health department there, right next to New Mount Zion Church. So they used the health department parking lot in order to meet that requirement for parking in that regard. Secondly, we were able to name that health unit the Howard Roberts 
Dr. Charles M. Stevens Health Center. After Mr. Howard Roberts and Dr. Charles Stevens, one of the first black physicians in Frenchtown. We have a second one over on Orange Avenue, right across from Nims Middle School. Uh, that one happened to be the, happened to be the name, name Richardson Lewis Health Center, named after Dr. Charlie Richardson, the founder of the Bond Community Health Center, and this guy called Henry Lewis, who's speaking with you today. All right. Look at all the way, you know, going through all these challenges, being labeled a slow learner, but ultimately succeeding and now having buildings and things named after you, providing to the community, giving back to others. When you look at your life right now, and if someone were to write a book about you, about your life, what is it the one thing that you would want in that book? so that people could walk away with something, what would that be? That he never forgot where he came from. He always remembered where he came from, and he always wanted to get back to where he came from. My dad used to have a saying, son, wherever you go, you leave that place better than how you found it. And that's what I'm trying to do in every place that I've been, leave it a lot better than I found it. I uh, I came out of Bond Community. When I came back to Tallahassee after uh, working in California and I retired, I, I saw my community had gone somewhat down, not somewhat, but really down. And there was a group in the community organizing at that time to want to do something about that. That group was uh, headed up by a number of individuals. I don't want to call any names because I'll, I'll forget somebody. Forget it, then you get in yeah. trouble. I heard you on yeah, the podcast, and you, you didn't, didn't call, call my, my name. name. Exactly. <laughs> you so, know how we get. But they, they, they were working to uh, develop a plan for the improvement of bond, and I walked in probably three months into that plan, and they were really committed to what they're doing. And that lit a fire into me. Their mm-hmm. commitment caused my commitment to rise even higher. And working together with them, we were able to secure about $6.4 million from the uh, CRA here in Tallahassee to make improvements, major improvements to the the bond community. Uh, A new park has been put in already. We have now 100 homes that will receive uh, about $17,000 each as a grant. They do not have to pay it back to make uh, improvements to the outside of their house and make some renovation to both add value and add beauty and aesthetics to those houses. A uh, number of streets are going to be resurfaced and repaired as well as sidewalks put in uh, and the like. So we're trying to transform bond into a new bond so that people want to come back and live there and make it the community that it was when we were there growing up. What was your fondest memory of the Bond community growing up? Community. The one word, community. We were a community. Everybody kind of took care of one another. Everybody kind of knew one another. You helped one another. If somebody was on hard times, the community came together to help them. And I don't ever remember a homeless person in Bond I don't ever remember a person going hungry in bond. I don't ever remember a person not being clothed in bond because that community took care of its people in that regard. So that's what instilled in me the desire, the motivation, and the appreciation for making sure I give back. Giving back. That sense of community. When I look at today with all of the social networking and uh, all the online communities and the different platforms where we are so well connected from a technological standpoint. But you talked about that sense of community. Why can't we have that with all of the the technology and the, the, the sense of connecting, but we're not really connecting with one another? What's the challenge? What is that? How do we get back to that sense of community? Well, I think technology, instead of uh, bringing us closer together, has pushed us further apart in that people who would normally come out and talk to you, 
they will the text or email or, or even physically call you on the phone and not have that one-on-one connection with those people. My background is in health, and uh, the whole thing about health is putting hands on, hands on the people. The doctors do it, the nurses do it, the physical therapists do it, the dentists do it, even the pharmacists do it now. So that physical contact gives a connection between the individual and the person who's connecting with him or her so that they feel that vibration. You can't get a vibration through a text. You can't get a vibration through an email. There's no physical contact there. There's no emotional contact there. And in order to really understand a person, you got to understand the essence of that person. What is making them tick in that regard? And we've lost that. Uh, I think technology is great. I don't ever want to not be without it. But I think that we can't substitute technology for the personal touch. That human connection. I mean, that's very, very vital. Even when we look at, um, you know, and I'm no medical doctor, but from what I've heard, those first few years of a baby's life, that that mother's Mother's touch touch. is very important. That sense of human touch Uh to make that connection and not being isolated. And and I think, you know, even though we're connected, so and we can even FaceTime and have video calls, but even in the midst of COVID, we're seeing a a rise of mental health Health issues. issues. And but yet we can still see, but it's that coming together, looking somebody in the eye, seeing those nonverbals. It really means a lot. You're absolutely correct. And technology is taking us further and further away from those kind of connections. And talking, let's talking about connections. You went to went to school, you went to college, um, but you still had to sit for. Um, the boards for pharmacy. Yeah. And so you, you, you had your, your bachelor's, but you had to go back and you had to get your doctorate. But talk to us about that journey from your, your bachelor's to obtaining that doctorate and then ultimately passing the exam on okay. the first go round yeah. yeah. <laughs> for pharmacy. Yeah, that's, that's a good story. Uh, I graduated in 1972 and uh, the state of Florida at that time was still uh, fairly segregated and in the health professions it was even more segregated because very few blacks worked in the hospitals you got to keep in mind that uh, FAMU's hospital closed in 1968 it's four years before we graduated so that, that began that integration of the health uh, professions not only here in Tallahassee but nationwide in that regard so when I graduated uh I moved to Tampa because there were no jobs here in Tallahassee. When I got to Tampa, there were no jobs in Tampa either. Uh, And I had to do an an additional 1,080 hours after graduation in order to qualify to sit for the pharmacy licensure examination. I couldn't find a job, so I couldn't intern, so I had to eat. I had to pay for my rent. So I got a job as a Motor vehicle inspector. Back in that day. When you had to get the cars inspected. inspected. Yes. You had to go through that uh, line and and uh, get your car inspected. Because I was an inspector uh, for the state of Florida. Uh, just so happened one day, a gentleman came through my line by the name of Jack Jones. Mr. Jones was a pharmacist there in, Tal- uh, in Tampa uh, on Dale Mabry Avenue. He had his own drugstore. And uh, we got to talking as I was inspecting his vehicle. And he, I told him that I was a graduate of a college, school of pharmacy then. It wasn't a college. A uh, school of pharmacy at FAMU, and uh, I couldn't uh, find an internship position. So I'm doing this. He said, well, I can't pay you, but if you need to get your hours, you can come to my drugstore, and I'll let you get your 1,080 hours. That's approximately six months of full-time work. Well, I couldn't work full-time, so I had to work. So it took me a little bit longer than the six months to get my hours. But nonetheless, I did. And even working in this drugstore, people would come in and would not let me fill their prescriptions, although I was qualified as well. But nonetheless, he was so cool. He said, don't worry about them, don't worry about that. You working here for me, with me. He got me through that 
period. Well, individuals did not want, want to do that. Little did I know that Mr. Jack Jones, within uh, a month after I finished working with him, would be appointed by the governor to the Board of Pharmacy. Look at God. <laughs> it, needs, it needs something. It needs something. And he said, I want to make sure you are ready for the licensure examination. So I worked with him after graduation, after working with him in the evenings, and he helped me prepare for the licensure examination. I passed on the first time in that regard as well. So God puts in place people on your path in order to help you get to where you're supposed to be anyway. And that goes back to what, you know, I tell people all the time. And one of my coaches told me, he says, you know, activity brings results. I mean, you could have said, wow, you know, I I don't have my hours. I guess I'll never become a pharmacist, but you said, I'm going to work, you know, faith without works is dead. And so you worked and then, God placed you in a position to where he knew somebody was going to come by to meet that need. And that's what I tell people all the time. You got to be busy. Even the Lord says, occupy till I come. And while you're working, you never know who God's going to put in your path. And so that is inspiring. Once again, you may not have what you need right then, but do what you know to do. Change that behavior and start doing something. And what you need will come. And get this after I passed the board, still living in Tampa, a position at Bayfront Medical Center in St. Petersburg came open as for a pharmacy assistant director. Mr. Jones wrote that letter of recommendation for me, and I was able to get that position. Within I was one year out of college now. One year out of college, I'm now an assistant director of the hospital pharmacy that they had just integrated the year before that. That is powerful. Awesome. My listening audience, I hope you're really gaining something out of this. You're listening to Mr. Speaker Speaks, and my guest is Dr. Henry Lewis III, and he's telling us about his journey, his life story of how he started from humble beginnings, being designated as a slow slow learner, but now he's shared how he's been elevated and God put people in his path to help him to get to where he is today. How old were you as an assistant director of pharmacy? I was. Had to be in your 20s. 22. 22, yes. One year out of of school. Right, exactly. How did that change your life? Oh, wow. It opened up another door. Little did I know that uh, working at Bayfront Medical Center in St. Pete, two significant events would occur. One, of course, uh, Dr. Charles Chris became a, a resident at Bayfront Medical Center, right, fresh out of medical school, and I got a chance to meet and work with him very closely because uh, my pharmacy uh, was located next to his floor, and we service his floor. Uh, Dr. Charles Chris is the father of Mr. Charlie Chris, who became the governor of the state of Florida. Talk and about relationships and connections. Congressman. <laughs> congressman. So uh, working with him, we were able to do a number of things uh, within the pharmacy department that I don't think I would have been able to do or get done uh, without his assistance and his uh, running the interference for me and supporting those activities in that regard. Later, uh, within two more years after I became that position, Dr. Charles Walker became the dean of the then School of Pharmacy and I was president of the FAMU Pharmacy Alumni Group. Uh, I met him for the first time uh, in June of 1974. He just came on board in June as well. He had a vision for transforming the School of Pharmacy to a college of pharmacy and offering not only a bachelor's degree, but graduate programs as well. Uh, Dr. Walker was not a pharmacist. He got his degree in pharmacology, but he needed a pharmacist to work with him in order to help uh, guide him toward what more the direction of pharmacy. Now, here I am. I'm now 24 years old in 1974, and he invited me to come and work for him in the School of Pharmacy. still have a bachelor's degree at that time. And uh, I packed up my bags and left, left Tampa. Tampa and moved back to Tallahassee. And little did I know that... Uh, this man would uh, set me 
on a path that has taken me from the school of pharmacy then to where we are right now in that regard. He saw that I needed to have a doctorate degree if I was going to work at the university long term. He recommended me for a Kellogg fellowship. I was able to get the fellowship and I was able to complete my doctorate at Mercer University and come back to FAMU in 1978. Wow. That's just a, a wonderful journey. Did you, when did you finally get a love for pharmacy? And then I want to get an understanding. What's the difference between, you said, being a pharmacist and pharmacology? pharmacology. Okay. What's, what's the difference? That's, that's a good question. Pharmacology is the study of drugs primarily from a research perspective. Pharmacy is the providing of the medication to the patient itself. So research and, and patient care are the basic differences between a pharmacologist and a pharmacist in that regard. And you can be a pharmacologist without being a pharmacist. Oh, wow. So it almost sounds like an optometrist and an ophthalmologist. Exactly, <laughs> okay. exactly, in that regard. But Dr. Walker had a vision for the then School of Pharmacy to move it to graduate-level education, and we were successful in doing that. Uh, we got started a master's degree program, and we had to fight literally to get the then Board of Regents to approve Florida A&M and particularly the College of Pharmacy at that time to become a Ph.D. granting institution. And upon uh, a lot of hard work and a lot of politics, we were able to move that designation because the Board of Regents at that time did not want FAMU to become a Ph.D. granting institution. And uh, by them approving the pharmacy Ph.D., it opened up the door now for Ph.D. programs in education, in environmental sciences, in engineering, and all along as well at the university. So you were on the cutting, or what we would call the bleeding edge, yes, <laughs> and starting and set the stage for doctoral programs throughout the university. Yes. So you there. What led to you becoming the dean of pharmacy? But first, when did you find that you actually loved, and I just said, yeah. playing around with drugs? <laughs> the legal kind, not the legal kind. Uh, being a pharmacist, when did you find out this is something I really enjoy doing? I think working in the economy drugstore, you know, subliminally, you don't you don't know some things are happening to you until you get out in another area and say, oh wow, that's where I got that. Doctor Roberts at Economy Drugstore had a uh, a mission to provide health care for that Frenchtown community, and I think I saw what he was doing, how he did it, and I wanted to do somewhat similar in that regard as well. Uh, I think my true love came, I think, after I uh, got into in the pharmacy school and met the professors. We had an outstanding group of, fa of faculty. One of the gentlemen, I will just call his name because he has a brother who's very uh, well-known. Uh, one of our professors, Mr. Dr. Kenneth C. Davis, we used to call him Casey Davis. Mr. Davis's brother, uh, is Ozzie Davis. And Mr. Ozzie Davis would come to Tallahassee occasionally, and Professor Davis would invite several of us over to his house on a Sunday in order to meet and have dinner and talk with him the whole nine yards. So I met Ozzie Davis. They were from Waycross, Georgia. I don't know if people know that. No, I didn't know that from Waycross. From Waycross, Georgia. But nonetheless, uh, that was his brother, and uh, he treated us just like uh, we were just celebrities too, I guess, <laughs> in that regard. So wow, and so that you found out and that love. So, how did you become dean of the pharmacy school, mm -hmm. the College of Pharmacy? And then, what were some of the things that you did from a strategic standpoint to, as you said, as your father said, leave it better, better than it was? was? Great question. Uh, my first position uh, as dean, well, I, I had worked at FAMU from 1978 after I got my doctorate to uh, 1986, 88, 87. When I, and the opportunity for a deanship came up 
at FAMU. And I was not selected. And I did apply, but I was not selected. Uh, another gentleman was selected. And I decided that in order for me to demonstrate that I can become dean, I needed to go off and show that I can do this. So a position at Texas Southern University came available in, in 1990, and I was selected for that position. Uh, while we were there, we were able to start a Ph.D. program at Texas Southern, the first there at Texas Southern University, as well as well as add a new wing on to our pharmacy building uh, that uh, occupied, uh, that the College of Pharmacy occupied there at Texas Southern. That gave me, uh, I guess, a motivation and an inspiration to want to move up higher. Uh, about four years into my tenure, the position here at FAMU came back open, and Dr. Humphreys uh, asked me to come back to work at FAMU in 1994 as dean. And uh, we were located then in the Dyson building, which was the pharmacy building on campus. My, my, my vision was to really grow the College of Pharmacy. At the same time, the FSU started a school of medicine, and there were significant discussions about the possibility of merging the College of Pharmacy with the School of Medicine at FSU. Of course, I could not let that happen, and I would not let that happen, particularly on my watch. So we decided that we would grow the enrollment and the academic programs in the College of Pharmacy. Uh, when I became dean of the College of Pharmacy, we had about 300 students. When I left, that was in 1994. When I left, we had 1,200 students uh, in 2010. We were able to uh, add additional Ph.D. programs, both uh, in pharmacology. The first was in pharmaceutical sciences, uh, medicinal chemistry, as well as pharmaceutics, all disciplines within the pharmacy arena, as well as the legislature funded an institute of public health uh, at FAMU. And Dr. Humphreys, in his vision, uh, selected me to house the Institute of Public Health within the College of Pharmacy. Uh, at that time, my knowledge of public health was probably sitting right at zero. So, <laughs> that, but, that learning curve. But my, my instincts told me to go out and find the best person who knew about public health, that I could. So I had worked with a young lady at the Centers for Disease Control uh, in Atlanta, and I knew that she knew everything there was to know about public health. So I recruited her from CDC to come to Tallahassee to start my Institute of Public Health. i never forget this. Uh, I, uh, she came for an interview, and she uh, went back, and I sent a letter, and I, the letter was blank. The paper was blank when I said it. She called me up on a Saturday morning and said, I got the letter, but there was no letter in it. There was just a blank page. I said, uh, that was not a mistake. Uh, I want you to build me an institute of public health. And you got a blank sheet. <laughs> and she's done that. Uh, that institute of public health now has probably produced uh, more African Americans with the Masters and now the doctorate in public health than any other institution in this country right here at FAMU in that regard. Florida A&M University. Yeah, we, keep, we just do it. Keep striking, do it. And striking, and striking and striking and striking again. <laughs> exactly, some more. So we were able to do that. But most importantly, because in order to accommodate the growth, we had to have a new facility. And we worked with Al Lawson when he was both in the Senate at that time and uh, Dr. Humphreys. Uh, and Dr. James Ammons as well, all collaboratively made the, the funding for the new pharmacy building a reality. And we had to lobby hard for it because there were powers that be that did not want us to do that in that regard. But we were able to prevail. And we now have a state-of-the-art pharmacy building uh, located on the campus of Florida a First black county commissioner, dean of the pharmacy school, Explain the journey from there to interim <laughs> president well, of FAMU. When Dr. Humphreys was, uh, had been at FAMU, uh, I think that time from 1985 until 2002, and he decided that he was going to step down from the presidency, he 
recommended me to the board of trustees because we had just had a new, we went from the board of regents governing all of the state universities to the board of trustees located at each university. And my job, I was the first person to work with the board of trustees at Florida A&M University in my role as interim president. I was interim president from January to June of 2002. I remember uh, uh, one of the, I guess, platforms that I, I proposed while I was there is I'm not the interim president. I'm the president for the interim. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, I, uh, I like that. that. that I like stuck, that. And uh, the faculty loved it. And that just, that was the center tone that we're not going to just uh, babysit this university over my tenure here. I didn't know how long I was going to be there because the search was on going at the time. But nonetheless, making sure that the university was on on, on good footing and uh, would not miss a beat as we transitioned from one president to the next president. And my, uh, I think my most significant accomplishment that I'm most proud of was making sure that our students got their financial aid checks on time. <laughs> hey, that, okay. that, 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 that was a feather in your cap because all were, we hear is, I can't get my financial aid, but those students love that net check once yes, they get it. Absolutely. We, were, we met with all of our leaders of all of the areas that impacted the financial aid process on a Saturday morning in my office. And I, uh, I challenged them to make sure that we got those students to financial aid check by the next week. I said I had a, I had called a press conference on, on Tuesday. This was a Saturday before. And I wanted to announce that our students have got their financial aid checks. And lo and behold, we were able to deliver 6,700 checks, totaling over $20 million by that next Tuesday. Mm. And the, I know the students loved you. They loved it. They, loved it. <laughs> they, In fact, they really did. And, well, it was more importantly making sure that they got the finances they needed. So they can focus on the education rather than not, not the issues of not having the money to pay their rent, to pay their food, to buy their books, and the like. Wow. So, what lessons did you learn as the president for the interim at FAMU to help propel you to actually becoming the president of another college? I think my, my short tenure, albeit six months, uh, demonstrated that uh, I had the ability to run a university at that level. VAMU at that time, we had about 700 faculty, and I think we were about 12,000 students uh, at that particular point in time. Uh, I saw that, one, I could do it. I, didn't, I never had done it before, and being thrust in there particularly, uh, I didn't know that Dr. Humphreys was going to recommend me till. He recommended me. <laughs> and uh, uh, Be always ready. <laughs> absolutely. God says that, right? For sure. But nonetheless, uh, you, you, when you see the opportunity and you know you got a commitment to the university, you're going to do whatever it takes in order to make sure that you do what needs to be done in that regard. I probably made some mistakes, no doubt, but by and large, we were able to keep the university on solid footing, Nothing adverse happened to the university. We had our best, uh, I think, uh, a year with the legislature uh, up until that point in time in terms of funding. Uh, so we were able to move the university to another level, uh, even a, in a short period of time. We started two new activities, given the faculty recognition uh, as distinguished professorships that we never had had before, and that elevated our faculty, gave them a little money too as well. But nonetheless, it demonstrated our commitment to the faculty and what they were all about. So the students got the money, the faculty got recognition, and we were moving in the right direction. And I'm proud that we were able to do that. And and look, you know, we're we're doing this in person, so we're actually connecting here. If you all, for my listening audience, you all can't see this. You know, being the president for the interim then being the president of florida memorial university and you looking around and as i look and i see an african-american man what would you say to young african-american males right now who are like well i really don't need college i can really do something else because from what i've read 
And what I've seen is that there are more African-American women in college and graduating than men. What would you say to that young man right now um, based upon your life and what college and education did to you? What would you say to him right now? I would say to any young man uh, that they've got to get a strong education in order to undergird whatever they want to want to do. You got to have a background and a knowledge base in order to build upon. I don't care what your discipline, even a rapper, you need that education in that regard. Uh, we see too many times that young black men get waylaid because they don't have a vision and a direction for where they need to go. But I would admonish every young black man to make sure that he, one, gets a strong education, strong background, and then build upon that however he or she wants to. Whatever God sends to you, whatever your vision is for yourself, build upon that. But your base is indeed an education. And if you do that, and you're committed to doing that, I think you'll succeed in whatever you want to do in that regard. But we've got to get more African-American men and African-American males, both through high school and into college, because in order, in order for them to support a family in the way that I think they need to be to support a family and be the head of that household and hopefully be that breadwinner, then they need that training and education in order to get position in order to do that i agree 100 uh, percent, totally you know and i know that you know college is not for everyone but higher education some type of higher learning to develop your skill set um especially in this and the the economy we're living in now and the way the world is going now you need to be educated and abreast of what's going on in order to be able to function in this environment you hit on something that i'm very 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 uh, keen on right now. I, I've been in higher education all my life, but I also know, like you said, everybody's not going to go to college, but there are vocations that you can get into now that's going to pay good. Plumbers make, I had a plumber out here the other day. I spent $150 for them just to come and look at my pipe. But plumbers are making $50 an hour. Welders are making almost $100 an hour. Brick masons are making $75 an hour. All these are traits. I went to Lincoln High School. And for you all that can't do the math, I'm going to break it down to you. When he gives you that hourly wage, all you need to do to calculate annual is to multiply the dollar wage by 2080. 2080. By 2080. And so basically, $50 an hour, you're making six figures. You're making six figures. $100,000 or more. Yes. And those are good paying jobs that allow you to have a good family background a good standard of living, and be able to support a family. And that's part of what's happening, what has happened with the black community right now, a breakdown in the family structure, primarily because of the black male not being able to be the breadwinner, be the head of the household that he needs to be. And that causes a whole lot of other ancillary issues and what I would call collateral damage. Right. And I know I might get some pushback from some women who say, well, I can do that. And you can, and you should. But the head of the household has to be able to support his family. Yes, indeed, and that's on, that's a whole another podcast. We yes. we can go. We can go. <laughs> I mean, the time. I mean, I'm loving this interview. Time is just getting away from us. But I really want to uh, some insight about Red Hills Research Institute. What is that all about? Yeah. What we do is provide. Uh, we are kind of a middleman, if you will, between the drug company and the the patients and or the patient care center. We provide the opportunity of recruiting patients for various clinical research trials that the drug companies do in order to make sure that a drug is safe and secure as well as meeting the medicinal standards that uh, the FDA requires. So in my mind, I'm saying something like we just had the COVID vaccine so you they, and they had to have clinical trials oh, and so right. somebody had to get those, those people. Patients. So that's, that's what we do. We that's what those you, patients okay. all over the country primarily to uh, those various clinical trials. So at this point in your career and where you are now and, and what you're doing, what drives you now? Good question. I think the, the main thing that drives me is going back to my father's philosophy, leaving this place 
a little bit better than you found it. Now, the place is not so much one entity. It's your whole environment. And if I can leave this world and say that he left Tallahassee, he left Miami, he left Los Angeles, he left St. Petersburg, he left Houston, a better place than when he found it, then my role and my charge by God has been lived up to. And I think that I can safely say that all of those places that I have been, I hopefully I can, nobody will challenge me that I've not left it better than what I've found it. And with that, my final question to you today, Dr. Lewis, what matters most to you? God, my family, and my purpose. And we're going to end on that. I like that. All of them are good. I, I love that. But when you said purpose, that just rings out so much in my heart. I love God because I'm a pastor. My family, I have to take care of my family before I can do the things of God. And when you get to purpose, I always remember that line from a poem. It says, life without purpose is barren indeed. Can't have harvest unless you plant seed. <laughs> yeah, I can't, you know, I, I just love that. And purpose is, is truly necessary. And when we find our purpose and we act absolutely. on our purpose, it's not like work at all. No, absolutely not. Oh, Dr. Lewis, I just want to truly thank you for being such a wonderful guest to come here on Mr. Speaker Speaks to share with our listening audience your story of how you can accomplish. You may not have, but God will provide. You just got to have the want to the want to to succeed listening audience it's been a pleasure having you here listening and learning being informed being challenged and being inspired by dr henry lewis remember check me out on the internet at www.vincentedwards.com that's vincentedwards.com remember in all that you do be magnificent and until next time be good be blessed but most of all be a blessing to someone.